Episode 14, Sharing the Pain. Nisogi can loosely be translated as ritual purification by cold water and is a practice most strongly associated with Shintoism. It is performed by practitioners of Shugendo, a syncretic ascetic sect with a long history in Japan, and Nisogi is also performed by martial arts groups such as Aikido practitioners. The founder of Aikido, Murahei Weishiba regularly used this form of meditation to complement his training and search for perfection. Masogi can be practiced in many ways, but despite the diversity, a clear unifying thread to all Masogi practices is the endurance of cold water in order to purify oneself and by extension the surrounding community. Why am I talking about an esoteric Japanese practice of purification? Well, with this practice comes the interesting psychology of shared experiences of struggle and pain. We can see some crossover with combat veterans and warriors of old. This idea of brothers in arms. Only those who have shared the experience with you can possibly know what it feels like and therefore social bonds become stronger. Masogi should be extremely uncomfortable. Here is one example. In a small town called Kikonai, in Hokkaido in northern Japan, Masogi is performed in January at Samagawa Shrine. This is a relatively small shrine that is picturesquely nestled on the side of a mountain. The Masogi itself is quite well known in Japan due to its extremity and involves a group of four young men in their late teens to early twenties stripping down to a traditional Japanese loincloth or fundoshi in temperatures of up to negative 15 degrees Celsius and then being repetitively splashed with ice-cold water in a ritual performance that lasts about 30 minutes. The performance itself is then repeated by the same young men every two to three hours over the course of two days and culminates in a procession where they carry statues of Shinto deities, known as kami, down from the shrine and into the sea to be cleansed. Milder examples of Masogi involve groups of people performing warm-up exercises <clears throat> before walking into a pool of cold water and standing under a waterfall semi-naked while chanting. As described by one foreigner, it was like a thunderbolt hitting you as he stood under the freezing water- waterfall. An underlying principle of Masogi is to undergo physical hardship, hardship to reset your mind. In episode 13 of this podcast, I interviewed David Lynch, a pioneer of Aikido in New Zealand. Since then, he has kindly sent me his own experience of Masogi that I will read here. This from David Lynch. The Shinshin Toitsu Dojo was in Shinjuku in a converted apartment, which was quite small and became very stuffy in winter when there was a heater turned on and all the windows were closed. After my Uchideshi experience in the Yoshinkan, when the windows were opened even in midwinter and the only heating was in the form of hibachi and kotatsu in the other rooms, I found this very uncomfortable and made myself rather unpopular with some of the ladies by opening the windows as soon as training started. From this overheated dojo scenario, I experienced the opposite when I attended a misogi session led by Tohei Sensei during which we all entered the Kinugawa River in midwinter wearing only our swimming costumes. It felt more painful than cold, but we did some warm-ups before entering the river and practiced misogi call with bells and breathing when we got out. Even more extreme was my experience of the four-day indoor misogi call at the Uchikukai near Hanako Ganei. Oh, let me say that again. Hanako Ganei. Yeah, 
I had heard about this training and knew that Tohei Sensei himself had done it numerous times, which might explain his powerful key. So I asked if he would recommend me to take part, but he advised me not to, and to ask him again in a year's time. I did so and was allowed to enter what I would almost describe as hell. There were only half a dozen others participating in this rigorous training, including one American who seemed to be broken by the experience and left Japan shortly afterwards, and a few university students who seemed to be doing the training as a kind of punishment rather than their own free will. The training was led by the late Hino Teso-sensei, who started out by telling us that the literal meaning of misogi was to destroy the body, in order to develop the spirit. He mentioned the case of a woman with a terminal case of tuberculosis, who applied to do the training years earlier, but was initially refused on the grounds it would probably kill her. She was accepted when she said she was prepared to die, and came out completely cured. Needless to say, this sounded like pretty serious stuff, and made me wonder if I ought to produce my embassy identification card and make a diplomatic exit. But it was a bit too late for that. You were not allowed out, and you were submitted to an indescribably intense combination of loud chanting and the banging of drums and bells while we sat for long periods in Caesar. And for those of you that may not be familiar, Caesar is a kneeling position. We had to shout the chants with our full voices, 100%, and I lost my voice completely on the first day. After that, a couple of helpers were positioned behind me and whacked me on the back in time with the shouts so that my voice came out. The length of day, uh, sorry, the length of each training session was slightly different, but my normal sensation of time became distorted. A short session sometimes felt incredibly long, while sitting for over an hour sometimes seemed like just a few minutes. Our meals consisted of genmai, genmai rice and miso soup, and we used salt on our finger to clean our teeth instead of a brush and toothpaste. Before entering, I received some valuable advice from Tohei-sensei, namely that during the short rest periods between the shouting and the beating, when we went into another room, I should keep my back straight and maintain my centre, then breathe quietly. Most of the other victims were moaning and lying about in various states of collapse. What was the point of this extremely exhausting training? Well, I am not sure, but it certainly produced an unusual state of mind, especially on the last day when I was driven to a kind of peak of concentration with the faster and faster rhythm of the shouting, back-hitting and bell-ringing. At this point, each trainee took a different time to reach this peak and I was the last, I was taken into another room and subjected to a certain ceremonial process which I was told was to be kept secret. Perhaps it was just about putting 100% of your effort into something so strenuous that there's no room for dualistic thinking. After the training was over, there was a typical Japanese celebration with speeches and alcohol. The speeches were rather unusual, as nobody could talk properly, and even Hino-sensei himself could only talk in a hoarse whisper to con congratulate us. I was sitting beside the sensei and he gestured to pour me a drink, but I said, No thank you. One of the reasons I came here was to give up drinking alcohol. After all, I was not very good at it and found drinking interfered with my Aikido training in my life. Instead of saying, as most people would have, that one glass will do no harm, Hino-sensei looked me in the eye and said, If you are serious, you must promise the kami here and now that you will never drink again. I never have. 
Ironically, the following day I was invited by the New Zealand ambassador to help him entertain some Japanese guests at lunch. Since I could speak Japanese, but I could only whisper, and he thought I must have had too much to drink the night before. But the Japanese guests I managed to converse with by exchanging notes and whispering understood about Misogi and smiled when I explained how I'd lost my voice. Trying to analyse this experience afterwards, I thought, and I could be wrong, that the training somehow temporarily gave access to my subconscious mind without the usual intermediary, ego, and this led to a feeling of greater awareness and an appreciation of a different dimension of life to the normal, everyday one. It occurred to me at the time that if Hino Sensei were to use a sword, he would probably be very powerful, even if he had no training in Kendall, because there would be no separation between the mind and immediate action. One unexpected feeling I had on leaving the Misogi Dojo was a strong empathy with fellow human beings, and, even, and I even thought I could somehow read the minds of the persons passing me in the street. An ambulance drove past with its siren going, and I felt a wave of sympathy for the sick person inside. I suppose most people would think that doing extreme training would separate one from others leading normal lives, but my experience was the opposite of that. I'm not advocating this kind of extreme training, in fact I'm rather keen on the middle way, but I'm grateful for the opportunity to gain this kind of insight. The heightened awareness only lasted a few days, but it gave me something to remember. That ends David's thoughts on Misogi. Interestingly, he continues to routinely submerge himself in cold water to this day. He does this by wading into a swimming hole near his house most days of the year. Let's look into this idea of a shared, difficult experience further. In 2014, research published in the Psychological Science Journal suggested that despite its unpleasantness, pain may actually have positive social consequences, acting as a sort of social glue that fosters cohesion and solidarity within groups. Psychological scientist and lead researcher Brock Bastian of the University of New South Wales in Australia said, Our findings show that pain is a particularly powerful ingredient in producing bonding and cooperation between those who share painful experiences. He goes on to say, The findings shed light on why camaraderie may develop between soldiers or others who share difficult and painful experiences. A growing number of sub subsequent studies have supported this hypothesis, with research being done as recently as 2019. Another psychology paper was published in 2020 by Chinese researchers to further check the original 2014 work of Bastian and his colleagues. They took it one step further to see if experiencing unshared pain created the same result. This is what this paper had to say. Quote, We conducted two experiments that reproduced BJF's findings, BJF being the acronym for the three main researchers of the 2014 study. More importantly, we further found that pain does promote cooperation, but only when it is shared. When it is not shared, pain does not promote cooperation. These effects are consistent with the view that the social effects of negative experiences depend on the situation. At the same time, we found that sharing does promote cooperation, but only when sharing pain rather than sharing no pain. Moreover, pain does promote cooperation, but only when shared rather than unshared. These results suggest that shared pain has a great impact on humans' cooperation. In the unshared condition, pain drives self-focus, and the threat it signals to individuals arouses expectations of self-interest and self-survival. 
People in distress show more short-sighted behaviours. For example, after natural disasters, people giving priority to the motivation to meet short-term needs rather than the motivation to cooperate. And they prefer short-term benefits over long-term benefits. However, in the shared condition, people use commonality to clarify group boundaries, and they classify others with commonality as in-group members, especially when previous joint interactions between people are absent or weak, such as strangers in this study. Pain as a negative external stimulus can signal the potential threat the group encountered, thus motivating people to cooperate to strive for the survival of the group. Based on the above, people who share painful experiences are inclined to affiliate with each other, thus paying more attention to the interests of the group and valuing cooperation. End quote. So whether it is a group of people standing under a freezing waterfall or army recruits being pushed through boot camp, the goal is the same. Create a strong group cohesion through shared difficulty and pain. It is interesting to note that modern psychological research methods are now confirming what ancient warrior cultures have known for a long time. That's all I want to talk about for now, so let's look at today's quote. This one is by Scott Neal, co-founder of American Freedom Distillery and retired Green Beret. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. <laughs>